This is the RCF podcast, and I am here today with Randall Curtis, the pastor of Frenchtown Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Randall, welcome back. Good to be here. You've been on the podcast before, and you've helped us cover some tough topics. We covered Does God Have to Love Me in the first episode that we did, and then the second one was Has God Always Treated Everyone the Same? Two tough topics. One of the things that we've desired to do with the podcast is to cover tough passages of the Bible. Um, I know we've kind of interacted with some of those as we've gone along, but on this episode of the podcast, I want to focus completely on Psalm 137, one of the most, I guess, controversial passages in our day, uh, one Mm. that, that many people have questions about. And so why don't we dive into that psalm? Let's see why it's so controversial. Yeah, I definitely agree. This is one of the hardest passages in the Bible to deal with. And, you know, a lot of people, they read a psalm a day or something like that. Mm -hmm. They they interact with the psalms an awful lot in their personal devotions. You love it when you're in Psalm 23 or Psalm 121, something like that. Or even just the psalm before 137. Psalm 136 opens with, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. It's the psalm that has that repeated refrain of his faithful love endures forever. And so you're loving that. And in your morning devotions, like, wow, that was great. And then you turn to Psalm 137 the next day, you expect to be, you know, edified and built up and find something good about God that makes you go yay and worship him and get you fired up for the day. And then you read this Psalm, Psalm 137. And this is a hard passage. And hard passages, I think, are great. I love hard passages of scripture. Um, They stretch us. Yes. That's a healthy thing. Yes. And what they really do is they expose our misunderstandings. Because hard passages are not hard if we understand everything properly. Right. If our understanding is where it's supposed to be, then we would read that passage and we go like, well, yeah. And if we knew all that God knows, then we would certainly see things differently. Yeah. And and that's kind of the idea. As we read scripture, we start to see things through God's eyes instead of through human eyes and through our flesh. Yes. So these hard passages, they challenge our twisted and faulty assumptions. They challenge our simplistic interpretations of Scripture. Mm. You know, these simple things that we tell ourselves, well, the Bible says this. Mm. And then you read this passage, and you're like, well, okay. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't as simple as I thought it was, right? right? So let me read Psalm 137. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, there we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees. For our captors there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it! Destroy it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. I think the last part is probably the reason for the controversy yeah. and the, uh, that weird feeling you get in your gut when you read that. Yeah, that last line hits you like a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Like, what? This person's praying that babies will be dashed against the rocks? That doesn't seem right. This is in the Bible? How, how could this be in the Bible? And there are possible ways of understanding this. One of the easiest ways you could explain this away is just saying, oh, it's hyperbole. Mm -hmm. We're not actually talking about infants being dashed against the rocks. You know, this is just hyperbolic language. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, I think it is hyperbole because I don't think 
this prayer is saying, oh, I want every baby of every family in the entire Babylonian empire to be dashed against the rocks. That's not what's being said here. It's saying that in the midst of the Babylonians being conquered, I hope that this type of bad thing happens to them. And this type of thing has a tendency to happen in war. There's always war crimes in war. And so they're just saying, we want that done to them. So this whole psalm takes place during the Babylonian exile. So the psalmist is in exile in Babylon, is looking back at what the Babylonians have done to them at the siege of Jerusalem, etc. And they're saying, I want that same thing to happen to them. And that's where we can certainly understand how the psalmist is responding like that. Yeah. Because, yeah, if it happened to us, to our families, and to our people, yeah, you have that sense of, I want to see revenge. Yeah. And, you know, this is in line with what happened in the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, we talked about this in the last podcast we did mm-hmm. on, on the question of whether or not God has changed how he deals with people over time. Uh, one of the things that God promised he would do to the Israelites if they disobeyed him was to have them undergo a siege that was so terrible that they would eat their own children. And the book of Lamentations, we talked about that last time, it shows that this actually happened, that things got so bad, conditions were so bad in the siege of Jerusalem, they were resorted to cannibalism. And it's terrible to think about. It's supposed to be terrible. So you're not supposed to look at that and say, oh, isn't that nice? You're supposed to say, that's awful. Mm-hmm. Now, the book of Lamentations is called Lamentations for a reason. It's a lament. This happened to them. And so as a reassurance, it's really fascinating. Isaiah chapter 13, God actually prophesies that he will do this to the people of Babylon. In Isaiah 13, verses 16 and 17, it says, Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives violated. See, I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. So God looks at the Babylonians and says, okay, they punished my people Israel, but they took it too far. And so now I'm going to punish them. I'm going to punish them by sending the Medes to conquer them. And when the Medes show up, the Medes will dash their infants to pieces before their eyes. So God specifically predicts that this will happen as a punishment to the Babylonians. And so the psalmist maybe is aware of this prophecy in Isaiah. A lot of times you can tell in Scripture that they're aware of other passages of Scripture. The psalmist is saying, hey, God, you promised that you would do this to the Babylonians. I'm asking you to do the thing that you said you would do, which is to dash their infants against the rocks. Send the Medes to destroy the Babylonians like you promised you would. This makes a little bit of sense in a sense, you know, some kind of justice. It's the eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth kind of a justice. Right. Which is a principle in the Old Testament law. The Babylonians did it to us. God, do it to them. That's what they're asking for. However, this really troubles us because it goes against our sense of justice. It goes against our sense of justice probably at least on two levels. One is we think no one should treat kids this way ever. In a sense, we could make some fine ethical distinctions between what God is allowing and what God is perpetrating or something like that. And, but I'm not going to get into all that. Let's just say that God is not necessarily morally responsible for war crimes. Even though God may allow war crime to happen as part of his punishment, he is not ethically responsible, morally responsible for that crime. And that's hard to understand, and that's a question for another podcast. But you know, the question of, can God, like say, punish children? Well, we talked about that two podcasts ago on the question of, does God have to love me? Uh, we talked about the fact that God does not follow necessarily the same rules that we follow. God chooses who lives and who dies. If God wants to kill you, he can. If God wants you to live, he can keep you alive. And the same goes for a child. The same goes for an infant. 
everyone's life is in God's hand to do with what he wills. And if he wants that child to die, then he wants that child to die. You and I cannot gainsay him in his decision to do that. And so that is kind of one area where it bothers us. We treat children as a special case. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, God does as well. We see that in the New Testament, that God has a special place in his heart for children. But on the other hand, God holds that child's life in his hands, and he can do with it what he wills. That's one way it goes against our sense of justice. It also goes against our sense of justice because we don't believe that children should be put to death for their parents' sins. Mm-hmm. And that actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. God says parents are not to be put to death for their children or children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sins. God says that that's how you and I are supposed to be conducting justice. That's a principle of human-to-human justice. Mm -hmm. In human courts, we use this as a principle. We talked about this before, that if I steal, my child should not go to jail. Mm -hmm. If I steal, I go to jail. But in the Old Testament... God relates differently. God related differently, yeah, yeah, to people. At that time period, God related differently. When the parents ate the sour grapes, the children's teeth were set on edge. And so that's what's going on here is the Israelites, they disobeyed God, and so their kids suffered. The Babylonians, they disobeyed God, and so their kids are going to suffer. And God doesn't relate to us that way anymore, but he related to them that way in the past. And so that's why we feel like this isn't right. Well, yeah, we feel that way because that's not how God works today. Mm -hmm. So when you look at a passage like this, it challenges a couple of basic assumptions. We basically just mentioned them. That the same system of justice or morality and ethics applies both to us and to God. Uh, We discussed that a couple of podcasts ago, and we see it here. It's not okay for me to grab somebody's baby and dash them against the rocks. That would be a horrible crime, and I should be punished to the fullest extent of the law for that. But if God wants it done, God can do it. He has the right to do what he wants with people's lives. Has God treated people the same way at all times and all places throughout human history? No. So God punishes people differently in the past than he punishes people today. That might be hard to wrap your head around, but that's how he operates. So this passage challenges those assumptions. And it also challenges the assumption that God is obligated to us in some way, that he must protect human life and not kill anyone, especially infants. But we can see it from this passage, and we can see it from lots of other passages in Scripture, that that is not the case. God is not obligated to me to preserve my life. He chooses to do so out of his goodness and love, but he doesn't have to. He's not Mm -hmm. obligated to. And that goes for infants, and it goes for adults. It goes for all of us. Right. Everything that he has created, he has no obligation to. So then, we've kind of dealt a little bit with how we reconcile this difficult passage in our minds, but it doesn't really help me when I'm reading through the Psalms, and I get to Psalm 137. I may sit there and I may think through, well, okay, God dealt with people differently back then. Oh, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. But does that really feed my soul when I'm reading through the Psalms for my devotions? What do I do with this passage? What does this passage mean for me today? How does it relate to me? You know, like, what do I do with it? Well, that was for them. No, there's actually a lot that links still to us today. This requires you to go a little deeper than the surface level. We like to read through the Psalms and say, oh, his love endures forever. Yay! (laughs) Like, that was easy. Like, I found something cool in that Psalm, and I didn't have to work for it. Yeah. Psalm 137, you're going to have to work for it, and you're going to have to think a little more deeply. I just wanted to kind of toss out a couple of things to help us think through how we deal with this psalm as believers today. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting, I actually love Psalm 137. The beginning of the psalm is is really poignant. Mm -hmm. It's really emotional. Uh, Here you've got the exiles. They are in Babylon. They're weeping, and they're being taunted by the Babylonians. They're being told, sing one of the songs of Zion. But they're struggling to sing a song of Zion. 
Mm-hmm. For one thing, they don't want to give their captors the satisfaction. Mm-hmm. For another thing, they don't feel like singing. They don't feel like rejoicing. Right. Because they're in exile. Yeah. And they say that in verse four, how can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? I can't bring myself to do it, mm-hmm. to rejoice. But if you look at verse five, he says, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. So he, he fights through it. He fights through those feelings of, I don't want to give my captors the satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And how can I sing the Lord's song on a foreign soil? And he says, wait mm-hmm. a minute. Jerusalem is my greatest joy. I need to find joy in Jerusalem, even here. And so I do need to sing a song of Zion, even though I'm in exile. And so for us as believers today, we do have a Jerusalem that we are looking forward to as our greatest joy. And that is the new Jerusalem when Jesus returns. Yeah, We are currently in exile. That's how the New Testament describes us, mm-hmm. as people who are scattered in dispersion, in exile. When we look at the world around us, things may not be the way things are supposed to be. Of course they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a sinful world. And some days you may feel like, man, I just don't feel like rejoicing. Mm. But we have this greater hope that we're looking for, the new Jerusalem. And so it doesn't matter what we see in the world around us. We can still rejoice in Jerusalem as our greatest joy. Yeah. This is not our home. Right. And in fact, we ought to. Yeah. So we ought to rejoice and we ought to look forward. And this pairs very nicely with the image of Babylon, because if you go to the book of Revelation, not only do you see the image of the new Jerusalem descending from heaven at the end of the book of Revelation, but you also see the angels and everybody rejoicing over the fall of Babylon, Mm -hmm. which, you know, depending on, you may have slightly different interpretations of what Babylon is, but it's some sort of symbol of the, the world system that is opposed to God, that is persecuting Christians. Right. Exactly like what you find here. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just a different version of the same thing. It's a repeat. Mm -hmm. You know, things go in cycles a little bit in the Bible. So here they're in exile in Babylon. They're being persecuted by the Babylonians. In Revelation, there is some sort of Babylon. That's the name that's applied to whatever it is that is persecuting believers. And the believers in the angels and everybody rejoice when God finally brings his wrath, his punishment upon Babylon whatever mm-hmm. Babylon is, all right? So when we read Revelation, we're looking, we have this twofold hope. One is the new Jerusalem, where we will finally be at peace and rest. We will find ultimate joy. The other hope that we have is that Babylon will finally get its comeuppance. All the forces of evil that are opposed to God, that persecute believers, will be judged in the end. Mm-hmm. So in the New Testament, it talks about, hey, leave room for God's wrath in Romans 13. Don't take revenge on people. And actually, that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to take the Babylonians' infants and dash them against the rocks. Mm-hmm. He's looking to God to take care of that for him. Yeah. God, And he's also not looking at it from a personal angle of, I've been offended, and so therefore I want yeah. revenge. But it, it's, God, your name, your people are being persecuted and harmed, yes. and God, I want you to handle this. Yeah. Y- you get justice. Yes. And so, yeah, he's not taking it personally and yeah. taking that on himself. Yes. He's not treating God as his personal revenge tool. Right. But he is asking God to bring about justice, but he's leaving that up to God. Right. So he's, he realizes he's helpless in this situation. God, if anything's going to happen to sort this out, it's got to be you. Mm-hmm. 
and that's really important. But you also see Jesus saying, pray for those who persecute you. And I mm-hmm. think what Jesus means there is pray that they'll come to know Christ, mm-hmm. pray for their salvation, pray good things for them. Mm-hmm. So to me, like what we think about today is like a two-tiered prayer where we, if someone is persecuting us, we're praying that they get saved. Mm-hmm. In fact, we might try and share the gospel with them, be the answer to that prayer ourselves, right? God, use me to share the gospel with that person, even though they're persecuting me. But if that person continues to rebel against God, then we're, what we're looking for from God is that God will bring about justice. Mm-hmm. God either save them or punish them, one or the other. Mm-hmm. And that is what this passage is all about. We're looking forward to the hope of the new Jerusalem. And if people aren't coming along with us for that hope, then they're going to be part of the fall of Babylon, either A or B. Mm-hmm. God's going to answer this prayer with either A or B, either with the hope of Jerusalem or the fall of Babylon. And it's this dual hope that we have to keep in our heads at all times. So when I read this psalm, I say to myself, hey, I'm in that position. I'm that exile in Babylon, and I need to rejoice. I need to have that hope of the new Jerusalem. And part of my hope is to see God bring justice on those who do not repent. Mm -hmm. And I need to have a hope in that as well. And that's an okay hope to have because God gives it to us in the book of Revelation. And you see the martyrs in the book of Revelation praying towards that. They're praying, they're asking God, God, bring about justice for all these people who have been persecuted throughout history, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that twofold hope is yeah. really important. So that, that really applies to a lot of the imprecatory psalms, the, the psalms where we see the psalmist praying against his enemies in that way. That that's a helpful thing to think about. We pray, yes, they would come to salvation, that they would repent and believe and trust God, and that, that we would have the opportunity to extend that forgiveness and grace that we're called to extend as Christians. But recognizing we're also praying for justice, yeah. that we are praying, God, if they don't repent, that you will intervene and you, you will bring justice. So I I think that's helpful for all of those psalms that we come across. Psalm 137 is only one example of many of those that you may encounter on your daily Bible reading if you're reading through the psalms. Yeah. So being able to have that dual focus of it's really in God's hands. It's about what God wants to do. But you... You're kind of hoping for the positive outcome, that they, mm-hmm. they're a believer. But if not, hey, we'll take justice. Mm-hmm. I think the, the psalmist would not be rejoicing in the fact that anyone is being killed in that sense. So, yeah, it is with a heavy heart that we pray for justice. But yeah. So we have to be careful of that. We don't want yes. to make sure, yeah. <laughs> want to make sure yeah. we're not taking delight yeah. in someone else receiving that justice of God. Yeah. Even any joy we might feel, it's the joy at seeing justice satisfied, mm-hmm. not at seeing a, someone else suffer. Right. There are other passages about not finding joy in the downfall of your enemy. Right. There's this this fine line between rejoicing over the fall of Babylon and secretly saying, yay, my enemy <laughs> got what was coming. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and there's somewhere you cross the line and you're doing something wrong. So yeah. that's a something for another podcast. But yeah. Well, we praise God that we do have a God of justice, but also a God who saves. Amen. So rejoice in him and trust in him, which is what we're reminded to do in each of the Psalms. Keep trusting him. Keep believing. Amen. Randall, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for helping walk us through this very tough passage. Thank you. Um, I'm sure we'll have some other ones to throw at you very soon. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So listeners, submit your questions and uh, hard passages. You can submit those questions to podcast at roadiefellowship.com, and we'll try to answer as many as we possibly can. With God's help. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for listening to the RCF podcast. 
And we hope you'll join us again next time. In the meantime, visit us on the web at roadiefellowship.com or on Instagram at roadiefellowship.